0: This is The Takeaway. I'm Todd Zwillick. Over the weekend, author and journalist Suki Kim, who's been a guest on this program, published an article in New York Magazine accusing former Takeaway host John Hockenberry of sexual harassment and in some cases sexual assault and workplace bullying. Suki herself said she was the recipient of persistent and unwanted attention from John Hockenberry. Several former women producers and interns for The Takeaway then told Suki their stories of being harassed, of receiving unwanted attention, and in some cases being kissed without their consent. John Hockenberry does not deny these allegations. Separately, two former hosts of this show, longtime co-host Celeste Headley and Farai Chidea, who filled in as an interim co-host for several months, recounted stories of being bullied and, as Celeste puts it, professionally sabotaged. These stories have outraged and disappointed and saddened us here at The Takeaway. But they also raise important questions. We invited Farai Chadea on today, and also Kristen Meinzer, a former takeaway producer and co host of the Movie Date podcast, who was one of the women who came forward in Suki's piece. They both said they want to hear management from our parent station, WNYC, go on the air first. We have reached out to both WNYC leadership and Public Radio International. Those are the two entities that own The Takeaway. We also invited WNYC president and CEO Laura Walker on the program today, as well as Dean Capello, WNYC's chief content officer, who for a long time oversaw many elements of The Takeaway. They both declined. With me now is Suki Kim, investigative journalist and author of Without You, There Is No Us, Undercover among the sons of North Korea's elite, she reported this story in New York magazine. Suki, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Suki, tell me why you started asking women who've worked on or around The Takeaway about their experiences with John Hockenberry. What made you pursue this story?
1: Well, I was on the show in December 2014. I was contacted by John Hagenberry, the host, a year later, nearly a year later, for the meeting he requested through my publicist. So I met with him, and he said that, you know, it was a brainstorming meeting, except he wouldn't really tell me what what we were brainstorming. And then that's when these emails began, which were always a little bit borderline, you know, like asking to meet at a museum or um, just like slightly too intimate for a work correspondence. I mean, that's the uh, difficulty with those emails as a woman. It's hard to pinpoint what is wrong with them. But these emails just continued and continued. And he kept asking for a meeting. And I met with him again in June uh, 2016. And that's when the emails turned incredibly, to me, inappropriate, one of which was Need Another Dose of You, was how it was titled. And then I stopped replying back. And up until then, I had replied professionally. And then his emails just kept arriving and arriving. And um, he was emailing me until 2017, January. I mean, look, I met him in 2014 in December for eight minutes. And these emails continued. And um, I couldn't actually... I, it was disrupting my work because... I would also separately get requests from takeaway producers to come on the show as a guest, and I didn't want to be interviewed by the host. So as I was stuck getting this request and not able to reply, I um, realized that I needed to just warn the uh, radio station. So I came here to uh, take away, to report the incident with HR, Months later, I heard that he retired suddenly. I wondered if he was sending those emails to me and I was on the show for eight minutes, um, then what is going on with all these young women who are stuck working with him in an office?
0: You turned and you asked women who worked on The Takeaway and had worked on The Takeaway about their own experiences with John. What did they tell you?
1: I spoke to so many women, and generally, I realized that, that two different kinds of abuse were taking place, you know, women who were of higher rank, which there aren't many. There were co-hosts and um, and these guest hosts, and these women did not really—there was no sexual breach, as far as I could tell. And then there were younger women who were producers, interns, freelancers— And with them, the inappropriateness was sexual harassment where physical um, contact was involved, unwanted contact, as well as uh, these late-night G-chats he would send them, generally making them really feel uncomfortable sexually.
0: Some of the women you spoke to described unwanted attention from John. Some women described inappropriate sexual encounters, including including kissing, when they didn't want to be kissed.
1: What was common with those stories were how um, scared they were because younger women uh, generally, you know, didn't have much power on the show. And Hockenberry was at the top of the show. He basically, it was all about him, really, the whole show. He's the oldest person on the show. You know, he's the hero of the show. He's supposedly the genius of the show, all these young women were in awe of him and and I'm not saying all of them said negative things some women were exceptionally positive about Hockenberry being their mentor in a way some of them felt indebted to him for their career but that for some other women went hand in hand where he's sort of a mentor they never really experienced the really screaming at them kind of horrible treatment that women who are more his equal uh, the co-hosts who are Adora, the doji Celeste so Hadley, Farai, Chidea, what those three women experienced is very different from what the young women experienced, younger women experienced. The levels of abuse and harassment were sort of these multiple levels of them.
0: Uh, Suki, before I let you go, I want to read a little bit from John Hawkenberry's statement that he sent to WNYC through a spokesman. It horrifies me that I made the talented and driven people I worked with feel uncomfortable and that the stress around putting together a great show was made worse by my behavior. Having to deal with my own physical limitations has given me an understanding of powerlessness and I should have been more aware of how the power I wielded over others coupled with inappropriate comments and communications could have been construed. I have no excuses. Suki, your reaction.
1: I'm not sure if I have a reaction to that, but I have a question for you, actually, because you have said, I've seen your tweet over the weekend, that you're very surprised and in shock. I just don't understand how you could have not seen if you'd been here for a decade, where almost everyone I talked to were aware of an abuse happening around Hockenberry on either level, and also considering three co-hosts, women of color, had all left after filing complaints, which mm-hmm. essentially shut down the younger women. They couldn't complain because, you know, really powerful women complained and they were let go really by the management who did not protect any of those women. So, I mean, since you're a journalist and journalist's job description is to be perceptive, How could you not have seen? I'm not putting you on the spot, but I guess I am in a way. I'm curious, genuinely.
0: It's all right to put me on the spot. I want you to hear what I have to say uh, to Takeaway listeners that I think goes right to your story. Um, People might be wondering, did I know about John Hockenberry's behavior? Was I aware of it? Did I do anything to stop it? And it is a fair question. And the answer is I never witnessed John harass or bully anyone until I started hosting the show. I was Washington correspondent. I lived and worked in D.C., and I wasn't in the office with the rest of the team day to day. When I did come to New York, it was almost always when John was gone. These last few years, I was his fill-in. We were like... Ships passing in the night, a lot of times. So,
1: what about the fact that three women were let go back to back after filing complaints, which almost everybody knew, and also the fact the show is about diversity, which is led by a white man, really, John Hagenberry, where all the women of color were somehow they had to leave the show, and it's still uh, you're a white man hosting the show, and you didn't get fired. Well, like those, I mean, you didn't you didn't have to leave the show for a decade
0: conversations about John's outbursts and his meanness did come up among the staff in chatter and over drinks. Um, And, you know, one thing that I used to say when John's bullying came up, uh, whether it had to do with other hosts or with members of the staff, um, I felt like one of the lucky ones. John never trained his ire on me, not directly anyway. And I ask myself now, because I never asked then, why? Why was I spared? And the truth is, I don't know why I was spared John's ire, but given the other things we do know now, thanks to your reporting, it's possible John could have seen me, another white male, as less of a target. Uh, Was I privileged in my workplace because the star of the show, even subconsciously, saw me differently than some of my coworkers? Because if so, that's a problem. Uh, You know, as much as we say our workplace is a family, it's not a family. It's a job, and no one working hard on the job deserves to be treated differently because of their race or their gender or their identity or their sexual orientation. And if I was treated differently by John Hockenberry, that's something to deal with, and it's something we're going to keep talking about on this show. And, Suki, I want to thank you for airing out this story. I want to thank you for reporting it and especially for agreeing to come on The Takeaway with me. And here's my pledge to you, Suki Kim, and to everyone listening to me right now, wherever this story goes. We'll keep covering it, and we'll keep listening to you. This is The Takeaway. In this moment of reckoning over sexual harassment and assault and workplace harassment, a reckoning that has hit us square in the eyes here on The Takeaway, are women of color being heard? Is this movement, you can call it Me Too if you want, is it just about some women? Rebecca Carroll is here. She's special projects producer for WNYC. Rebecca, thanks for being in the studio.
2: Sure, thanks for having me.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your own experience?
2: Sure. I had been at this job at the station probably two weeks when John invited me to a staff meeting. And probably inside 30 seconds, he said to me in front of the staff, if it feels like a slave plantation mentality here, that's because it is. And then proceeded to, without gauging my response at all, talk about all of his sort of efforts to champion black voices during his tenure on the show.
0: What did that experience say to you? What did it leave you with?
2: that's racially offensive. And I think what's really deeply important, um, some folks know that I was also a producer for The Charlie Rose Show and um, have talked some about my experience there. The the similarities are just striking, you know, the he was the show, these over-the-top egos, the narcissism, the berating, the belittling, all the rest. Um, But importantly, these men created sort of micro-fiefdoms, if you will, that sort of replicate a kind of white supremacy and patriarchy, which is inherently racist and sexist. So that will invariably involve racial and sexual denigration. Now, we're focusing primarily on the sexual harassment piece of it, an aspect of it, because most of the stories that have come forward have been made by white women. Now with this story, Suki's story, and it's not to take away from the sexual harassment stories of, of white women or women of color, for that matter, but to just directly connect the dots to the ways in which an environment that allows for sexual harassment also allows for racial denigration and racism.
0: What did you take away when you read Suki's story, when you talked to her, when you heard other reports on WNYC, when you look across the range of the women who are named in this story, all women of color. I want to know what your reaction was to that and what it is now a couple of days later.
2: You know, I mean, it feels like a a moment of reckoning. It feels like it's high time. It feels like these are all women who I greatly admire and respect. It's a moment to be listened to, which is quite remarkable because women of color, black women specifically, and I can only speak, you know, as a black woman, are not listened to. Um, we know that, that black women and women of color are, uh, are sexually harassed if, as much, if not more, uh, than uh, white women. But we don't come forward because there's so much more at stake and at risk. Um, so I think it's a moment of reckoning, and I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for it.
0: Rebecca, I'm the host of this show. I'm the interim host of this show. I have a platform here, uh, another white guy hosting The Takeaway. John is now gone, and here I am hosting this show, again, with this platform. How do you think I can best use it?
2: Well, I think you have to hold yourself accountable. I think you have to ask. I would like to ask you. I would like you, you to ask yourself, is it lost on you that you are succeeding a white man as a white male host of a show that started with a mission of diversity and inclusivity? Uh, what is your role? What is your role in that? Um, and I think that it's just, it's a matter of of accountability and being feeling really, really unclear. You're going to feel unclear, but that's really the start. You have to come undone. You have to undo what you have been thinking because whatever it was that you were thinking allowed you a certain level of obtusity around this whole issue.
0: Uh, One of the things I said to Suki at the top of the show is that I never really seriously questioned why when John was training his aggression at times on other people, why it was never trained on me. I was kind of happy for it, to be honest, because it was nice to not be subjected to harassment or screaming. John and I didn't see each other a whole lot. Um, and I felt lucky, like I said, but I never did ask, why am I being spared? I said this at the top of the show. I want to say it again. I never did ask, why why am I being spared that?
2: And I would ask you, why did you not ask yourself that?
0: I never thought to. I just felt, I just felt lucky that it wasn't me.
2: And now you know that you didn't have to, right? Yeah.
0: I never marched up to John and said, hey, I've been hearing stuff about you. Knock it off. Knock it off. I could have done that. He could have told me to get lost. I don't know. I never did that.
2: Do you think you would if you had the chance to do it again?
0: In retrospect, if I could now, yeah, I could. And I regret it. I regret it.
2: I can assure you that you will have the opportunity to stand up for women in the future of your career
0: and I intend to use it, and I appreciate you coming here. Rebecca Carroll, Special Projects, WNYC, thank you. Sure. Kristen Meinzer was a producer on The Takeaway for six years. I worked with Kristen. Many of our current staff did. You heard Kristen on the air doing movies on Friday. She also produced culture segments for us. She's one of the sources named in New York Magazine. She's here with me now. Kristen, thanks for being here.
3: Thanks for having me back, Todd.
0: We've heard parts of your story on the show this week as various guests have come through through our reporting. Um, Can you take a minute and share it with us again?
3: Yeah, yes. So John sent inappropriate uh, messages to me by social media at one point. He asked if I would go away to an island with him. He wrote me early on in my tenure here that everybody here thought I was a dominatrix, which... Obviously, made me feel pretty bad, and I thought, "What are people saying about me about me behind my back?" Here, when my now husband and I posted uh, photos of ourselves on Facebook, he commented that he hoped that one of us had herpes, and then he forcefully kissed me in 2014, and he said it was because he was so thrilled and excited that I had booked Marianne Cotillard um, for an interview, which is a guest that he was really hoping I would get for him. And then, of course, he
4: also just was a bully.
0: Were your colleagues aware of his behavior? Your colleagues were aware that John was a bully and that John lashed out. the sexual behavior, the G-chats, the social media, the comments, and the kiss. Were your colleagues aware of that?
3: What I've come to realize is he was sending those inappropriate G-chats to almost all of the young females here. It wasn't just me as far as him actually forcing himself on me. This week, since that piece came out from Suki Kim, one of my former, one of the hosts on the show here at WNYC, but not a host on The Takeaway, he wrote on social media that he witnessed it and he expressed remorse for not doing anything at the time. And also another freelancer who said he also witnessed it and didn't know what to
0: do. Did you feel like you could go to management?
3: No, no, absolutely not. And here's why I knew that the management knew. To give you an idea of how much the management knew, Rupert Allman, who is the executive producer for most of my time here on the show, sent me a note this week saying, quote, I knew he could be a bully and had problems with boundaries. And it wasn't just Rupert, though. Farai Chidea and Celeste Headley went to station management to complain. And shortly after they did, they were gone. And I felt the message was very clear. If you complain about John too high up the ladder, then you'll be fired or you'll disappear somehow.
0: We got a statement from Rupert Allman. Rupert says, I failed in my capacity as executive producer to grasp how egregious John Hawkenberry's behavior was at the time. Yes, I knew, as did everyone else, that John was a bully to everyone. Bullying, yes. Sexual harasser, no. That I supervised a team who felt they could not tell me about his hostile and predatory behavior is on me. But it was only after reading Suki's investigation that I found out about this incident with Kristen, how he behaved with previous co-hosts and also uh, was also known to me and to WNYC management, but it took place before I was an employee of New York Public Radio. What do you think about your former boss's statement there?
3: I don't think it's enough. I mean, I think that all people in management who were involved in perpetuating and enabling John's behavior I think all of them need to be held accountable. I think that that there was knowledge, and I don't know why nobody acted on John's behavior. I've I've thought about this before. Was it because all of them had a history of dating and or marrying younger female colleagues? Is Mm. it because they wanted to maintain the status quo at WNYC, which was almost entirely white male hosts? Was it because they're of a different generation and they just saw that kind of behavior as... Uh, friendly flirting in the office and saw that that was part of a newsroom culture. I'm not sure why any of them didn't act. I have no idea, but they all need to be held accountable. And I want those people in senior management who are still in the building to step down or to be fired.
0: Kristen, you said on Twitter that you did not want to come on this show until WNYC management, Laura Walker, the president and CEO came on first. Now she has not come on this show to talk to takeaway listeners. Uh, On Tuesday, she did go on a local program on WNYC, the Brian Lehrer show. So listen.
4: Um, these are very serious and this behavior cannot and should not be tolerated and it won't be tolerated we need to do better we need to do a lot better I deeply regret that our culture and protocols did not work as they should uh, such that the full extent of the allegations are just coming to light this alleged behavior happened on my watch and I take responsibility
0: Kristen
3: it's not alleged these things happened and Yes, uh, WNYC does need to do better. I love all of my colleagues here at The Takeaway. I love so many people here at WNYC, and I just want them to be protected, and I want to know that going forward this will never happen again to any of them because all of you, Todd, are doing outstanding work, and I want everyone to feel safe to continue doing the outstanding work you've always done.
0: Kristen, I'm sorry this happened. I'm sorry this happened, and... I thank you not only for speaking out to Suki and helping make her story happen so that we can all face what went on here and what's going on in this country, frankly, and in our culture, um, but that you've mustered the will and the courage to come back on the air. Um, I never wanted to see you back here having to talk about this kind of thing. Um, I'm sorry it happened. I'm, I'm sorry.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Todd.
0: Farai Chidea came to the program as a guest host in 2009. She says John pulled her aside one day, told her she should not come to the show just to work as a diversity hire, and then he told her she should lose weight. Farai went to New York Public Radio President Laura Walker.
4: What really did put a dagger through my heart was when I went to Laura, I went straight to the top. And I said, this is what happened. And she said, it's horrifying, but with a certain I'm just going to be blunt here, theatrical finality that sort of implied this is not to be discussed again.
0: Farai Chidea is the author of The Episodic Career and a program officer for journalism at the Ford Foundation, which has supported WNYC. She talks about the emotional and financial consequences of what happened and then about some lessons for media and journalism.
4: There's a massive wealth gap in America and employment discrimination contributes to it. And so when the media ecosystem is deeply poisoned, people are forced to make hard decisions. And I think we're finally reaching a point where people say we deserve a better ecosystem. And that's why I want us to speak, although I'm speaking about what happened to me here at WNYC, this is not just a WNYC issue. And and I'm not excusing WNYC. I think I'm being pretty blunt. But I want to make clear that this is a systemic issue and we all have a role in fixing it.
0: John never bullied me. I said this earlier in the week. I questioned whether it was because I was another white male. How could it not be? I don't know quite what to make of that.
4: I think what we make of it is change. And that means systemic change in the newsroom and systemic change in the American workplace. Looking at things like the work of Iris Bonet, who's a professor at Harvard about gender design for workplaces. And she says, stop trying to de-bias people, you know, and tell everybody, you know, you must like black people. You must like women. Just design workplaces where biased people can do less damage. She's been a proponent of symphony auditions happening behind screens. So people are judged on their musicianship, not their gender, not their race. Like there are ways to design workplaces to deal with the fact that human beings are often biased and sometimes really disagreeable.
0: Another way is to have more people of color being the bosses and in leadership so that those biases will be treated with more proactivity and will be treated differently than if it's, frankly, just white dudes leading a place.
4: WNYC has a management team that is both male and female. Gender alone will not create equality, nor will race alone it takes people who are committed to actually doing the work. And I do agree that adding more managers of color and more female managers is key. But what's really key is having committed management with strategies, the willingness to let go of people who don't conform to workplace protocols, and stopping protecting people who don't live up to acceptable code of conduct. I think one of the things that takes down a lot of women and people of color in journalism is what I call intellectual belittlement, where your ideas are just never good enough from inception through execution. And let me just point out as well that I asked 15 news organizations to give me the race and gender compositions of their 2016 political reporting teams. Only a third of them actually gave me the numbers. Journalism companies are not transparent. We're not walking the walk like we're doing great journalism, many of us, but our companies are not walking the walk. And if we want to survive an era of widespread civic mistrust and widespread mistrust of the news industry, we've got to shape up and walk straight. And by the way, I sort of feel like we should take the diversity jersey and retire it and just bring back the meritocracy jersey. If we simply had meritocracy in America's newsrooms, we'd have very different newsrooms. But when you have things happening the way that they've been happening in America's newsrooms, including this one, you don't have a true meritocracy.
0: What is going to send this in the right direction and not make it a three-month episode where two years from now, everybody goes, remember the fall of 2017? That was a time. Let's go do something else
4: newsrooms need to sort of purge their secrets in order to heal and that also gets to questions like what did management know and when? what did the board know and when? there's questions of nonprofit law. I was talking with a friend of mine who was a university president for over 20 years and she said that when a lawyer working on behalf of a nonprofit is asked to generate non-disclosures by management, they also may need to flag the board about those NDAs. Did that happen? These are all legal and procedural questions that have not been answered. And I think there deserves to be some follow up. And also broadly in the industry, there needs to be more transparency about these processes. You can't build new systems on top of a shaky foundation.
0: I'm sorry that you took a risk by walking in here in the first place because we missed out.
4: You know, it's taken a lot for me to learn to love myself fully. And I'm not there yet. But I, you know, I know that that in her interview with Brian Lehrer, Laura Walker mentioned that she had experienced sexual assault. I too um, am a survivor and and, uh, specifically of childhood sexual abuse. But I've done the work. I think that it's your job not to inflict your pain on others and to go through a process of healing. And just this weekend, for example, I was talking with someone about how this whole reliving of the WNYC experience had triggered me. And in fact, when John called me fat, it actually did trigger me because my weight is partly in reaction. It was a self-protection mechanism after childhood sexual abuse. He didn't know that. It's not his fault for that being triggering to me in that way. It was his fault for saying it. But because I've done the work on myself, My saying that gave another woman a chance to process her stuff. And so it wasn't two of us crying on each other's shoulders. I was able to stand in strength and hold her while she had a moment that she needed to have because right now women are being triggered everywhere. And it's, again, not just women. There's some men, too. But it's like right now people are really going through it emotionally. And at this point, I'm a bit of a steely-eyed pragmatist, and I'm really looking forward to the ways that all of us can play a role in creating a better news industry. I'm really looking to the future, and I think it can be extremely bright and better than what we've got now.
0: Uh, Farai, I wanna thank you for being here. I wanna thank you for your work, and I appreciate it as always, you coming here to share uh, part of that vision with us because it's valuable.
4: Thank you, Todd, and I just wanna say that thank you to the newsroom staff here at WNYC. I know it's a challenging time, and just hang in there.
0: You can listen to my extended interview with Farai. There's a lot more on the website and on the Takeaway podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.